Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how to build and maintain a customer-centric business during periods of digital transformation. We'll discuss not only the importance of a strong customer experience, but also the impact of corporate culture, strategy, technology, and data analytics. For a perspective on the intersection of digital transformation and CX, I am joined today by the world's leading authority on customer-focused business strategies, Don Peppers. For longtime marketers like me, Don is probably best known as a co-author of the book, The One-to-One Future, which he wrote with Martha Rogers. The first of 11 books, The One-to-One Future is called one of the two or three most important business books ever written by Inc. Magazine, while Business Week said it was the Bible of new marketing. I think what may be most interesting is that Don and Martha wrote the book in 1993, and it is relevant today as it was 25 years ago. Don, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jim. Thanks for that very flattering uh, introduction. Much appreciated. So, Don, you know, you've been in this business for a while. You were in the agency business before becoming an author and speaker. Through the years, obviously, the tools we have are very different than ever before. How has customer experience changed as it relates to digital transformation? I think digital transformation is the be-all, end-all in terms of companies wanting to think about their business from the customer's perspective. It used to be before we had the World Wide Web and interactive tools and smartphones and before 24-7 connectivity, it used to be that businesses based their marketing on what they called unique selling propositions, right? You had a unique selling proposition. And that, that unique selling proposition applied not to particular customers, but to your product. What was unique about your product? What was what was unique about your brand? And because the brand and the product was represented, it's this, the same exact way to every single customer. And customers, fundamentally, were anonymous points in a market. You didn't talk to individual customers except almost by accident. Or in the customer service area, you would talk to individual customers. And, but you didn't try to treat different customers differently when it came to what you were offering customers, because that was just not very cost-effective. And it was digital technology. And there was basically the ability to inexpensively interact with customers, one customer at a time, the ability to track, as you said, the data of individual customers and call it up uh, relatively easily, and also the ability to to basically mass customize your offering to to actually change up the manner in which you dealt with customer A and customer B based on what you knew about customer A and B and what they had told you interactively about how they wanted to be treated. And that really created a sea change in marketing. When you're looking at this whole transformation, can I assume that the mission is still the same, the tools are different? Yes, I, I suppose you could. But I think before interactivity and before the, the data revolution, companies, marketers at companies couldn't really even imagine a world in which you could, in fact, afford to treat one customer different from another customer. You had to treat all your customers the same because that was the only cost-effective way you could manage an industrial age institution. 
And the only exceptions to that were in the business-to-business space, where instead of dealing with millions of customers, you had maybe dozens or hundreds of customers, and you had individual account managers in charge of each individual customer. And it's kind of that model, a uh, client service model, which has, um, I think, uh, been adopted more and more by banks. So you now uh, have a formation of a company called CX Speakers, Customer Experience Speakers, which is really about helping organizations and leadership really implement customer experience initiatives. There's a reason for that, I would imagine, and that because if you can get the leadership to buy in, it helps culture and everything else. What do you see as the biggest challenges you're meeting with organizations in really while we all talk about it, in really embracing and implementing a guest customer experience? I think there are three categories of obstacles that companies face. One is capabilities. Do they really have the capabilities necessary to to do what needs to be done? And what are those capabilities? Well, you have to have the database, and you have to be able to make that data available to people on the front line, your front line executives uh, and client-facing personnel. You have to have the capability to interact with individual customers, to track them from transaction to transaction, all those capabilities. Now, they're technologically easy today, but it's still not something that a lot of companies are entirely comfortable with. And and, uh, putting those capabilities in place is obstacle number one. Obstacle number two has to do with alignments and uh, metrics. Have you aligned your organization? Most companies are still aligned along product-centric metrics, uh, product-centric means. Uh, I make a particular product really efficiently, very cost-efficiently, and I try to sell that product to as many people as I can. And that's a product-centric model. And I have product managers, I have brand managers, and I have product profitability metrics that I, that I keep track of. But if you're treating different customers differently, you really need customer managers you need to divide your customers up into portfolios so you can manage them more cost efficiently. You need to know how one customer is different from another, and then you need to actually act on that knowledge. And frequently, businesses get all tangled up in the metrics. Let me just give you a quick example. There is a, a consumer electronics company that has a contact center for doing sales. They have an online presence, and they also take sales over the phone. And the people who man the phones at this digital music company, music instruments uh, retailer, they're paid commissions. Okay, They get a commission for, for making sales. What I learned from talking to one of them is that the vast majority of the phone calls that come inbound result in sales at that contact center are the result of the fact that the music company's website is in large parts dysfunctional. It doesn't work right. Things don't connect well. Uh, it get thrown off. There's lots of dysfunction in the website. But the contact center people aren't going to tell the company about that because then they wouldn't get any calls. And that's a really good example of a poor alignment of uh, metrics and accountabilities, you see. Another example would be when you pay a salesperson a commission for selling new products, the easiest people to sell those products to typically are the least loyal customers because it's the easiest customer to get from another bank if you're a bank is somebody who's not loyal to that other bank, right? And if you only pay people commissions for getting in new customers or for selling a new product to a new, you know, a new prospect, 
then you're going to bring in a lot of disloyal customers who are, in fact, have already shown that they are fundamentally disloyal. If you want to get loyal customers, you need to change your metrics of some, in some way. You need to perhaps come up with a, an incentive structure that, that cuts the salesperson in for a, uh, maybe a, a small piece of the continuing action from a customer so that they're not acquiring the easiest customer to get, but somebody who's likely to be more valuable to the bank over a longer period of time. And, and those are alignment issues, okay? How do you align your metrics and your accountabilities? Who's responsible for which customer? There is a, a third issue, and that has to do with something you've already hinted at, and that is the culture and the mindset of the people in the company. As they, as they say, you can't write a line of code or a business process rule that results in employees delighting customers. The employees have to want to delight the customer. And so you want your employees to want to do better service for that customer, to create a, jet, a better customer experience for that customer, to deliver that customer more value, and to, and, and, and to give the, therefore, to generate for the bank a higher long-term value from that customer. And they have to want to do it. And that mindset issue, that cultural motivation is a, is a, is a key issue. If you have the right culture, if you do have that mindset among your employees, you can sometimes overcome misalignments and poor capabilities because employees will make up for it, provided they're enabled and empowered to, to do so. You know, it's interesting. You, your first case study is the same in the banking industry. And metrics lie because what we see is that financial institutions say consumers do not want to open an account digitally. They want to come into the branch. Well, the problem is because most banks have not built a really seamless, easy-to-use account opening process, the consumer is made to come to the bank. Now, what's even worse, as, as you referenced, is that these same account openers will very generously say, you know what, we want to help you. I want to make sure you got all the information correct. And they basically redo the entire process for the other reason, which is they want to make sure that their channel – is viewed as imperative and not unwound as part of the digital process. And the second is because they want to get the sale. Because otherwise, it shows that a digital sale versus a branch sale, and most organizations still use last-touch attribution. So what happens is you never are seeing the customer journey. Which, which gets me to the next question. What is the importance of the customer journey today as you see it with regard to the customer, the overall customer experience? It depends on what your definitions are. The customer journey is a way that a company looking at an individual customer tries to step through the process as that customer undertakes in order to meet their need or solve their problem, right? But the truth is the customer is not buying from you for the experience of going through that journey or having an experience with your product or service. They, they're buying from you because they think you can solve their problem. And if the problem would just go away without them ever having to take that first step anyway to deal with anybody, that would be the, the ideal customer experience is no experience at all. The problem or need just is covered uh, automatically. And so for a bank, the, the key issue in looking at the customer journey and, and, and trying to improve the customer experience is taking out the friction. Take the friction out of the, out of the, out of the journey. Let me give you an example of uh, a key difference here. I remember when uh, I'm old enough, and you you are too, Jim, I know, to remember when ATMs first came into play. In those days, before ATMs, if you wanted to get your money out of the bank, you had to stand in line 
behind a bunch of people and wait for a minimum wage teller, sometimes with a surly attitude, to give you your money. But when ATMs came out, they, you could get your money from a machine. But there were a lot of people who said, oh, I'll never get my money from a machine. What if it miscounts? What if, how would I trust a machine? But it turns out that the ATM became the least frictional way to get money. It became, it, it, it's, a, it's a friction-free way. If all you wanted from your bank was to get another couple hundred dollars in cash and have it with you, then ATM is clearly the, the most friction-free way to do that. It's really, really, really useful as a, as a piece of technology, as what I call a capability. Contrast that with uh, another form of sort of self-help uh, these days, which has, in my book has much less to speak for it, and that is uh, self-checkout at the grocery store. Grocery stores, they want to minimize their personnel costs also. You know, banks don't want to have to pay tellers in order to just count out money for people when machines can do it. And grocery stores don't want to pay cashiers to check out groceries and people can do it. But the truth is, when the grocery store asks you to do self-checkout, they're imposing a great deal of work on the customer. They're actually adding friction to the process in order to cut their costs because it's a lot more complicated if you're buying anything cumbersome or buying a week's worth of groceries and not just you know a single item or two to try to check them out yourself. Uh, no matter how good the machines are, you know the some something always screws up. There's always a UPC code that isn't valid and or a fruit that's mislabeled or not labeled at all, that, that kind of thing. And so what's the difference here? Well, banks have largely been successful in using machinery and automation to streamline the customer's experience, whereas grocery stores, it seems to me anyway, are using technology not to streamline the customer's experience, but to minimize their costs. Now, banks are minimizing their costs also because when you, when you do streamline a process, you, min- you, you do reduce costs. But I think the grocery stores are going at it the wrong way. And it's a really good example of how it's very easy to get diverted on the road to digital nirvana to think about nirvana from the standpoint of the company rather than from the standpoint of the customer. When in truth, it, it, you know, it's the customer who's going to give you a long-term business. So that gets me to my next question. What do you see as the role of the human in a digital customer experience mindset or a organization? I'm really glad you asked that question because I think a lot of businesses are, are getting so confused between the goal of simply reducing their costs and streamlining their processes versus improving the customer experience. Customers are human beings. What most businesses forget, many businesses forget, is that their employees are also human beings and humans relate to other humans. There are a lot of businesses out there that look at their employees as simply a, a necessary cost of transactions instead of what they really are or could be. They could be assets in cementing relationships with individual customers. Let me just give you a couple of examples. These are both banks. Commerce Commonwealth Bank in Australia told me this. Um, the CMO told me that when a customer calls in to the contact center at, at Commonwealth Bank, and there's some kind of issue that the customer has, and the contact center agent looks on the computer, and and uh, there's no solution to this. Uh, there's no prescribed process to deal with this particular problem. If that contact center agent, that frontline person, if if he or she thinks that they they know a good idea 
they have a good idea for how to fix that customer's problem. Fair to the customer, fair to the bank. The only permission they need to make an offer to the customer uh, to do this is they need to secure the agreement of one other contact center agent, somebody else, anybody. Just get two people sign off and then they can offer it immediately to the customer. You don't have to escalate it to the supervisor and goes to the VP finance and back down. It takes two weeks or five weeks to, to, to resolve. You can do it immediately with the customer. And I talked with another bank and uh, that's uh, National Australia Bank. National Australia Bank does a lot of uh, bad debt collecting for clients. Okay, it's one of their lines of business. And, and typically, what happens in in a in, in you know uh, late payment collections is you make calls out to the party, and then you reach them, and you say, "Now, uh, Mr. Albright, you you owe us forty seven hundred dollars. You're going to need to pay you know uh, three hundred dollars a month, and it'll take you about twenty four months, but we'll get this paid off." And Mr. Albright is ashamed that he's in debt. He's, uh, uh, he wants to get you off the phone fast as possible. And he says, sure, no problem, I'll do that. But then they don't ever, never do. 90% of uh, bad debt uh, uh, holders uh, agree to pay and then don't. That may be why they're bad debts to begin with. But at National Australia Bank, they do it a different way. And it's, been, it's proven very, very effective at collecting bad debts. They get Mr. Albright on the phone. And they say, Mr. Albright, now you owe $4,300 uh, here, and we would normally ask for $320 a month. What do you think you could afford to pay per week? And then they shut up. And then Mr. Albright come up with a figure. Well, I, you know, I could put $40, $40 to it every, every week. Would that do it? Yes, sir, that's great. Let's do that. We will agree to that, $40 a week. We'll send you weekly bills. It's going to take a little longer to pay off, but that's what we'll do. And 90% of the people who venture their own amount live up to what they've said. Now, why, why is that? It's because they're talking with a human being. They made a, they made a promise to another. It was an empathetic social inter, an arrangement. It wasn't a bot calling, okay? It wasn't um, a bot, that, that, uh, a chat bot or a piece of machinery. It was a human. What's necessary for banks to operate this way? Well, you have to have employees who are, have two qualities. They're engaged in the business. That is, they, they, they have an owner mentality with respect to the bank. They want to treat customers right, but they want the bank to make a profit too. They, they feel an, uh, a sense of mission there. And you need them to be enabled. So you need to train them. You need to equip them with the right information. And then you have to empower them with the right authority to make decisions. You can overlook their, you can look over their shoulder. You can ask them to, to make decisions within boundaries. Like if two people agree, then you could do this, you know, but you need to trust people more to get real humans into the, into the loop here. So when you talk about trust, you, you have a, I think it was your ninth book talking about extreme trust, turning proactive honesty and flawless execution into long-term profits. Is that what you're talking about here? Yes and no. First of all, our thesis, Martha's and my thesis in that book is that because the world is more interactive than ever before and people interact a thousand times more today with other people than they did 20 years ago before you had – it's a right, right in accordance with Moore's law. The more we interact, the more critical trust is because trust is what makes interactions efficient. You know, you don't have to count your change at the grocery store because, you know, you'll never get cheated in a, at a Western grocery store anymore. And why is that? To trust like that uh, makes interactions efficient. So I don't have time anymore 
to check the facts, to call out the lawyers, to, you know, to uh, do my due diligence. I just want to be able to agree on something with uh, another party and we'll do it together. We both are, are, uh, you know, live up to the, to the word of the agreement. Increasingly, customers are beginning to hold businesses to a higher standard of trust. It used to be the only real qualities you needed was uh, n- not to cheat a customer and you know to be reasonably competent in your business. But today, customers expect you to proactively watch out for their interests, to proactively protect them from making mistakes or overpaying or incurring penalty payments and so forth. But Wells Fargo suffered a tremendous battering because of a poorly conceived set of incentives that led rank-and-file employees at Wells Fargo to open up fake accounts or new accounts for, for customers that didn't need them. We've all read about that, that scandal, and I'm convinced that the main reason that happened is it basically represents an alignment problem. The bank, the senior executives of the bank said, well, how do we make ourselves more profitable? Well, we create uh, more than one line of business with each customer. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, let's, let, let's set these incentives up with these, with these metrics, right? There's a rule in metrics uh, that any, any, it's called Goodhart's rule, any metric that becomes an incentive is no longer a valid metric, okay? Because metrics can be gamed. And people, you can't expect them, you can't expect people not to game the system to achieve the metric, even though, even though what they're achieving might not be the objective at all. And that's, in fact, what happened at Wells Fargo. You had hundreds of employees, thousands maybe, setting up accounts for customers that, that didn't want it. So in the aftermath of that, Wells Fargo's needed to regain customers' trust. And I saw a very, very interesting app feature on the Wells Fargo bank app. And for members of the audience here, I'd ask them to ask, ask yourselves whether your bank app has this feature. And Wells Fargo, when you, when you go on the app and there's any kind of a charge for a transfer or, uh, you know, uh, 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 maybe uh, money translation between pounds and dollars or whatever, any kind of charge at all, the app has a button that encourages you to push the button to see under what conditions can you avoid that fee. How can you avoid, how can you do what you want to do and avoid having to pay that fee that applies in this transaction the way you've got it now? That, I would argue, is a very trustable kind of thing to do. And it's, it's designed to show consumers that Wells Fargo wants to be on their side. They're not just trying to fool them out of the fees that they, they, uh, they, they're going to owe. You see what I'm saying? Well, yeah, it's interesting because sometimes the the worst times bring upon uh, changes that were long overdue. But I, I agree. I, I've seen a lot of things that are the way they've con- reconstructed their website. A lot of the other things. Hey, as a big organization, they all we all have warts and problems. But I think they've really taken a bad experience and 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 really worked hard at trying to improve the way the consumer views that organization. It's a, it's a long climb, but so it's too. worthwhile. So. I, and don't forget that Wells Fargo bought Wachovia. And Wachovia only became Wachovia because it bought First Union. This is 15, 20 years ago. And First Union was a very, very customer-friendly bank run by people that came from USAA and set it up in an extremely customer-oriented way. And Wachovia inherited that culture. We came... It was really First Union that bought Wachovia and changed its name then to Wachovia. And then Wells Fargo bought Wachovia and became more customer-friendly. I think, well, I think the people at, at, at Wells Fargo, I think their heart is in the right place. 
but they got all tangled up in bad metrics and, and, and misalignment between the, uh, the real objective of their business and the, the small objectives that employees were rewarded for trying to achieve. Well, it's interesting because nobody wants to work for a bad organization. You know, you, no, uh, no. When you're, when you're talking about the good organization, the other side of that coin, what organization right now, from a customer experience perspective, would you put in the, uh, the top two uh, Don Pepper favorites? Well, my favorite has almost always been, for the last 20 years, has been Amazon. I think Amazon is uh, exhibit number one in terms of being customer-centric. They're, the, they're the, uh, the dot-com success story that really made customer centricity into a significant competitive advantage. And Jeff Bezos says has said in the past that, you know, we're customer-centric. Yes, it's good for customers, but mainly it's good for us because by being customer-centric, by constantly anticipating what it is the customer wants, we stay way ahead of our competitors. We anticipate what our competitors might do, and we do it first. We, we are better. And I think that's a really good uh, mantra. I think another really good example today is Apple Computer. Apple has sort of made it a, a, their life's work since the day, uh, day of Steve Jobs to be focused, almost maniacally focused on the user experience with their products, not on how much money they can get from the apps. And, and granted, you know, it's probably fairer to call Apple a luxury good than it is to call them a, a computer. They sell at a high price and they have, a, they have tremendous brand loyalty among their users. But there's a story in 2006 or seven when Apple was going to come out with the uh, PowerPC Mac. And the PowerPC Mac was going to have an Intel-type chip, an MS-DOS chip in it, so it could do better stuff, uh, be more compatible with the... And their, their sales fell down the quarter. They were one of the quarters this year when they were, they were bringing the PowerPC Mac out. Several of the investment houses following Apple downgraded their stock because their sales of the PowerPC Mac were off. One analyst actually upgraded their stock because they called in to the Apple computer staff and tried to order a PowerPC Mac. And the person who answered the phone for Apple said, yes, sir, I can give you the PowerPC Mac. But, you know, the Intel chip isn't actually in it yet. Uh, right now it's being done with another chip. You'll have more satisfaction from it probably if you wait three months. We will have the Intel chip in by September you, if you wait till then. And the financial analysts who made the call just to test the waters said, what kind of a company would talk you out of buying something? You're perfectly willing to pay $500 right now to get this product, and they're, take, they're not going to take your money because it's in your interest. You know what? That's the kind of company that's going to be around, going to be around for centuries, not just decades. It's going to be around a long time. And so they upgraded the stock. And I think Apple's entire existence has been – and they're proving it today with all the controversy around privacy. You know. Facebook and Google, Netflix, and even to a certain extent, Amazon don't hold a candle to the privacy policies that Apple has put in place, privacy protection policies, because that's what users want. It's not because it's profitable for the company. It's only, well, let me put it this way. It is profitable for the company, but it's profitable in the very long term. In the short term, it's costly for the company, but in the long term, it provides them a tremendous uh, benefit in terms of shareholder, uh, in terms of customer goodwill. I think you need to think of your customers as little little bundles of cash flow with a memory, okay? And the better their memories are of your previous interactions with them, 
bigger that cash flow is going to be in, in the future. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, we, Amazon gets mentioned so often, we almost take it for granted and we don't think about it. But I, I don't know a person that ever could give me a story of a bad experience with Amazon. Now, they have a little bit of a benefit in that usually the bad experiences are with their partners and people don't blame it on Amazon. They blame it on, you know, a, a vendor or somebody that was supposed to deliver something to you. But yeah, yeah. on the other hand, you ask somebody a great example of an Amazon execution and they'll almost always bring up, well, you know what? I bought something. I need to return it. They gave me the box. They gave me the sticker. They told me how to do it. Oh, and by the way, I received the replacement item before I even sent them back what they were, what it was not right. And a lot of times, Amazon will say, you know what? It's going to cost you more and more time and everything else. Just keep it. You know what? That is a risk assessment that banks don't do that say, you know what? The relationship overall is going to be greater if I just eat this little cost, have the conversation that people are going to have forever with their cocktail club, mm-hmm. you know, cocktail clubs and everything else saying, oh, geez, my experience and everybody will chime in with their experience. You're going to realize, oh, my God, they're doing things differently. And what does Amazon get for it? They get $120 a year for the right to shop at Amazon. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean and, Amazing, and, right? and it's not about free shipping because the reality no. is every major retailer now has free shipping, but nobody gets $120 a customer to have that right. Now, people say, yeah, but they also offer this, this, this. Very few of us use all the additional services, but when I no. do a survey of, of a big room, 200, 300 people, I'll say, how many Everybody's of you- Everybody's a prime member. How right? many are your prime member? Everybody. I say, how many yes. of you considered closing out your prime account when the price went up 20% a year and a half ago? Five people maybe put their hands up, and I ask them, <laughs> and how many of you closed it? They all put their hands Nobody. down. Yeah, right. And right. the reality is, it's the epitome of what we want to have. You know, the, the managing by walking around, Basil's- insatiable appetite for good customer experiences, but it also opens up doors for innovation. They continue to to innovate. Let's just take their Alexa device. They continually iterate it. Sometimes the, the, the device doesn't work. Well, they'll immediately say, hey, I'll tell you what, this wasn't exactly the way we wanted this to feel. How about if we get you another one? I mean, I, I still have an old video uh uh, one of their video devices because it didn't work. They sent me a new one. That's $250. And they said, don't send it back. It'll take us more to fix it than it will for anything else. Don, this this is a, a truly a, a privilege and honor. If I thought uh, 25 years ago, I'd be having a podcast where I'd be able to interview you. They would just mean the world to me. And, and you know, we both come from uh, direct marketing backgrounds. But at yeah. the end of the day, it all is about the customer experience and all is about building relationships using insight and information to move the customer experience forward. So thank you again for being on the show today. Thank you, Jim. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Also, Be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our amazing research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.
You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.